Hi, everyone. This is And Just Like That, The Writer's Room, the official companion podcast from HBO Max and Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Michael Patrick King, executive producer, writer, and director of And Just Like That. And here with me, as always, we have executive producer and writer, Julie Rottenberg. Hello. And executive producer and writer, Elisa Zaritsky. Hello, everyone. And joining this week's Writer's Room discussion, as she has always been joining our Writer's Room discussion from sunny California, and I might add from a closet in sunny California <laughs> where I first met her, we have one of our new writers, Rechna Fruchtbaum. She's written for shows like Parks and Rec, Fresh Off the Boat, and many, many others. And we're happy to have her here today, but deliriously happy that we had her in the writing room all those months before today. Hi. Way to, way to live up to an intro. <laughs> yeah, that's... Am I everything you wanted? <laughs> in life, and yes. More. On the podcast, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> okay, so Rechna, yes or no, original fan of the series? Yes, original fan. Of Sex um, in the City, I should mean. I know you're a fan of it just I'm like a huge that. fan of, uh, yeah, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Is that what we're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, such a big fan. And this is like a, a weird tidbit, but I feel like I shared it in my interview, like a normal person, where I said, as a small lady with kind of big boobs. Also, a low-key awesome thing about the original series is Carrie Bradshaw made it okay for a bra strap to show. Oh, <laughs> and it was wow. a big deal in my life. That's so funny. I never thought of it that way. But big fan for many, many other reasons, too. Well, what are the reasons? I mean, to me, it was like watching these strong, amazing, funny women— also be into fashion. I feel like incongruous things that we as women were told, like if you also like fashion, then you can't be smarter. You mm. know, those weird boxes we get put into in the original show, and I think this one too, let all those things coexist. Let incongruous things that don't have to be incongruous coexist. And I, to me, that's like the most special thing about it. Okay, so let's talk again about how we feel about now that this thing is out in the world, oh my and the, God. World, the world, literally the world, Portugal, I was on a, a lot of press Zooms from Portugal to Russia to wow. Botswana to what everybody. What do they think? Oh, well, <laughs> All of those I'm really, countries. Well, they, they don't think anything <laughs> in one thought, which is what's so exciting about the reaction to the show, I think, that it is like, you know, half the world is in love and half the world has got torches and they want to yeah. burn down the Rage. castle that we were in. And <laughs> it's it's mm -hmm. thrilling that there's such a moment because there's 5,000 shows on television. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that came up most is the way we handled Samantha. Mm -hmm. No one sure. dared talk about the really exciting stuff, which is age, how the women mm. look. You're right. In a way, right. The things I think we were most afraid of, we handled right away very early in the episode. They couldn't go after that because we said it ourselves. I realized, I know last podcast we said, oh my God, I feel like I've been pregnant for a year and I just want to get this baby out into the world. I just feel like we're ready to have it out in the world. Now it's out in the world and I realized... 20 years later, my muscle for being prepared for the reaction 
I was not prepared. <laughs> yes, uh, and I, adding on to that analogy, I felt it was postnatal. Like, I needed to mm. take, I needed to be horizontal for 24 hours afterwards because it was exa- it's it's exhausting true. It's true. to hear yeah. the response. Yeah. And it, it's like, also, to take that analogy even further, it's like when you take your baby out in the Bjorn and some lady's like, you should put a hat on it. Yes. You should. Yes. And I 100%. feel like also being prepared for everyone telling me how we should have done it is right. like, yes. was, I was unprepared right. yes. Also, what a Rorschach test it is. I mean, I'm sorry. I have to jump right in. Miranda and the professor. The physical response I'm hearing people had, like hiding under blankets, like freaking out this idea that Miranda, who is incredibly smart and super conscious and insightful and aware, had that moment was so upsetting for so many people. And I think it's like, guess what? Even the most smart and uh, aware articulate yeah. have blunders and step in it and and i i was just fascinated by that uh, yeah, I i'm fascinated that. by that too because you know one of the great things about sex in the city is we never told people whether it, to laugh or to take it seriously we didn't do a laugh mm. track we didn't underline what it was supposed to be and you know when we saw, show that scene at the premiere people were screaming, screaming. laughing mm-hmm. and so <laughs> The screaming, laughing, and, and that's what. And by the way, that's what it's for. It's laughter yeah. from uncomfortability, yes. and yes. people yes. sitting at home on their couch who are Miranda feel scalded, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't belong in the world. Right. I I really think there's a gendered response to embarrassment when it comes to seeing a woman flail. I think there's a strange protectiveness that people feel over women that they. Like, don't mind seeing Larry David humiliate himself right. and be an asshole. But <laughs> there, with women, it's like, oh, it's a different—I don't know. I don't I'm, agree I, that she humiliated herself. and I don't agree with that analogy that she was an asshole. What I think people were responding to was the difference between 55 and 25, mm-hmm. that the students in the room were having such a— horrific experience <laughs> of her to what she's saying. They were projecting so much on top of this smart character that you love that that's exactly what happens when you don't know somebody. You don't exactly. give them the benefit of a doubt. Yeah. And everybody, hopefully, right. who's known Miranda for 20 years, <laughs> it feels like, oh, that's unfortunate. But sure. that's what the show always did. Yes. Miranda yeah. especially was the most so, uncomfortable. She got hit with semen in the mm-hmm. face. Yeah. And a tantric sex show. Like, everybody's, they've <laughs> glossed over in their memory the journey of Sex in the City for yeah. six years, which was shocking, repellent, made people angry, mm-hmm. and they're remembering it in syndication. It's true. Which is just love. That's a great point. And mm-hmm. cute. Frills. Yeah. I was going to say, too, Michael, when I first met you, we also talked—I was like, I feel like that show taught me that every scene doesn't have to end with, like, a ba-dum-bum. And, like, it was, like, the first dramedy I really Mm. watched. And so, like, from its inception, I remember it being—I mean, there's a scene where the women sit around and talk about how many abortions they've had. Yeah, I mean, you know, the reality is, too, when the show debuted, people were like—speaking of following the baby analogy, Mm -hmm. it's like a baby that you go— is it cute or is it ugly? <laughs> totally. And people were like, is this 
funny or is this a drama? And we managed to do that in the funeral scenes. Yeah. I mean, agreed. The series has always been complicated. Mm -hmm. In revisionist history, it was fun. Right. Cosmos. Right. Right. I can't tell you how many people were like, I, we had a bunch of people over. We were drinking, we were laughing, and then what? And I could not be happier. I'm sorry for your friends, Julie. (laughs) Um, Because here's what my experience in television has been when you do something new they assume. You're not driving. People assume you're not going to take care of them as a viewer. We would never leave Carrie alone on that couch with the rain and thunder Mm. if we we hadn't had a plan. Not in a way that you might want. It might take you seven or eight episodes to feel good. Or you might get there in three, which is what it's for. Okay, let's get into episode 103, just three for you if you're watching at home, which is called When in Rome, written by Julie Rottenberg and Elisa Zaritsky. And please, if you have not watched one and two yet, or three, stop and go do that so you can enjoy all the spoilers that may come out of our mouths. Come on now. You know better. Get with it. (laughs) So episode three starts, uh, we pick up with Carrie and her friends about three weeks after Big's death. And we see that she's back to her life. She does the podcast, and then she goes into uh, the will reading for Big. She's joined by Miranda, and there at the Big uh, will reading, she learns that Big has left his ex-wife, Natasha, who has always dogged her uh, $1 million dollars. I mean, the thing that I loved about it being Natasha is that line from season three where Carrie's in the dressing room and uh, she says to Miranda, and Natasha sees her half-dressed, and she says, "Uh, she's always looking amazing and I'm friggin' Annie, get your clothes on. (laughs) (laughs) So the dynamic, the power dynamic has already been set up that the classic from the show is one is a curly girl, and one is a straight-haired girl. Mm-hmm. And Natasha's that straight-haired mm-hmm. girl who's perfect and carries the curly-haired girl who doesn't fit the prototype. So our big movement was to bring in something very potent from Sex and the City, I think kind of because we wanted to show people Sex and the City is still here, mm-hmm. even within mm-hmm. the death. And we made it the shocking thing of a million dollars, which, of course, is like the biggest fight we ever had in the old writing room was Mm -hmm. over whether you talk about money or not. And so the idea of actually putting in a million dollars, Julie? (laughs) Yes. The million dollars, that was your original impulse, that he leaves her a million dollars, and now Carrie is left with this mystery. She can't ask him. She doesn't know why. Over the course of writing many, 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 many drafts of this episode, and we'll get into why we wrote so many versions. Let's get into it. Okay, so originally this episode was going to be set in the Hamptons. It was going to be a time for Carrie and the girls to just be alone. They were going to be in the Hamptons. It was winter, right? Winter or fall. Mm -hmm. Um, We liked this idea that it was this refuge out there. Um, Carrie was The reason they were going to the Hamptons was to unload the summer home. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. (laughs) That that, Carrie and Big had it. So once (laughs) they The idea is her house is destroyed in the Hamptons. (laughs) Right. And they go out there. 
And what it enables them to do is separate from the city, have the three girls, and the girls, the other two girls are there to help her mourn because she hadn't cried yet. Mm-hmm. That was, that was the, the original impulse. And yeah, but I then Sarah say, Jessica cried instantly. Right. And we were like, I mean, Ooh. she felt it so much when Miranda opens the door in episode two, she's crying. And we're like, okay, that story's gone. She just um, organically did what would really happen. And when Elisa and I first went off to write the draft of 103 with this original spine of they go to the Hamptons, they were always going to come back for Chase's stand-up special. That mm-hmm. survived. That's the crazy right, thing. right. No matter what happened, they were coming <laughs> they were back coming to Chase. Got to get back right. for the special. But you know you're in trouble when we felt like something's missing. Something's missing. Oh well, Retchna, we had already with you guys decided. The safe that yeah. there was. Yes. Gonna be. We, we knew that there was the obstacle, and the obstacle right. was going to be she couldn't get into a safe that mm-hmm. she knew about. But it was going to be the original impulse was going to be the whole most of the episode was just going to be her as Nancy Drew trying to crack the code of the safe mm-hmm. with her friends. And as we wrote and wrote, it just became more and more clear that it was missing. New York City, it was missing energy, fun, drive, drive. Carrie. Carrie wasn't doing anything. And we realized at a certain crucial moment that she needed to pursue Natasha, not and, just stew okay. about yeah, Natasha. And also, Elisa said at one point, why are we leaving this city when it took so long to get back here? Mm. And that was the point where I went, oh, that's uh, right. They don't want to leave the city. They, they've been waiting to get to the city, meaning the audience. Right. And I have to just say, um, Michael, we know you so well at this point. After you read our first draft and we got on the Zoom together, you had an expression on your face I don't (laughs) think I'd ever seen before and I hope never to see it again. You were like, you took some bold swings. (laughs) Because I believe there was a sledgehammer. We literally had her attacking the safe. In a desperate attempt to create a a comedy. You were like, how can I see this? We have to activate her. In a nice way. But it was so clearly missed the mark. Listen, here's the reality. That hurt. Television doesn't just come out like this perfect pie crust all the time. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And... (laughs) The hardest part about working with people that you respect is looking at them and saying, eh, it didn't it do work. it yeah, for yeah. me. And that's, we have a very long relationship, yeah. and I don't think I've ever said that before. Oh, my God. It and, was so I also think it's it was, never yeah. your fault. Like, I mean, it's a room that broke a story, and we had the, I think this was the most theoretical episode we mm-hmm. had in terms of conceptualizing it because it was the one that we were transitioning out of one and two into, like, Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying the to prove the thesis of yeah. coming back yes. in three. Yeah. But the fact of the matter that's so thrilling about these two writers who actually look, you can do bad television or you can take your swing at doing the best television you can. And by that, you have to throw it out and start over. And Julie and Elisa are like, I call them like tanks. <laughs> they feel everything, they feel upset, they feel. Disappointed, they Mm -hmm. feel frustrated, but they get in the tank and they just dig in and then they start sending new stories and new pages. And we went back and forth a lot. But the fact of the matter is, what was missing was action. Mm -hmm. Action was missing. It was still the three of them in a house in the Hamptons trying to crack a safe. And that was just not happening. And then you guys came up with the idea of Carrie 
Miranda and Charlotte seeing Natasha in a window. <laughs> that was you. That was you. You have the bolt of lightning of the rear window spotting from the Soho window, and that was— Oh, really? Yes. Oh, well, anyway, the idea—I could see it, and I knew I was directing it. Mm-hmm. So it became real for me with the idea of, like, a Hitchcock rear window where somebody's seeing somebody on the street and somebody else is returning it, and I knew it was comic. Mm-hmm. And I knew the whole episode would work because of Carrie Bradshaw, who goes to meet Natasha. I mean, as she says, thanks, I've been dressed since 503. <laughs> Looking as presented and as evolved as mm-hmm. she can. The Grown whole premise up. is like, I'm not that girl anymore. And I want her to see that I'm not mm-hmm. that girl. And we're showing the audience that she's not that girl. Then we slowly start to chip away at it by having her go through his suits at night, which is that girl. Right. But the idea that she was going to be all dressed up and have it not work the way she wanted and that she's complaining and sees Natasha in the window— It's interesting. It was interesting because in the Hamptons version and even our reimagining, the audience wasn't going to see Natasha until the very, very end of the episode. But I loved your idea that Carrie and the girls see her in the middle. Like, it, it just made so much more sense for us and for Carrie and her friends what Natasha actually is. And as I keep hearing us say Natasha, 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 I I realize how much we invested in Natasha because I'm telling you, Bridget Moynihan Mm -hmm. walked in and auditioned for Natasha. And when I saw her, I said, if she can talk, (laughs) that's Natasha. Same thing I felt when Jason Lewis walked in to play Smith Jared. I thought, oh, please, if he can talk. But then Bridget was phenomenal. Well, and I remember Rechna, I think it was you. I know it was Sam. I don't think, Kelly, one of our drafts that we felt good about, the new version back in New York (laughs) City. One of our many. (laughs) There were so many. Um, I think it was you and Sam felt like, wow, you're being pretty mean to Natasha. Because there was a version where Miranda and Carrie, they were just going after her. And how dare she? And... And we lost sight of, like, she's not the villain. And like, right. Is that true, Rechna? Yeah. I, Sam and I, I feel like we called you, or we all jumped on at some point, mm-hmm. and we're just like, it because ultimately it makes them seem so petty. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's so weird because, to your point, like, that's her role in a way. That's her archetype on the show is that it's she's not the one you relate to. And yet I felt, like, protective of her. And I was like, this is too far. And not only you, then Sarah important. Jessica was very Mm -hmm. instrumental in telling us and reminding us when we were talking about it that Carrie's the wrong one in the scenario of Natasha and Big. Carrie busted up that marriage. And Sarah Jessica wanted for sure to make sure that Carrie kept saying she didn't do anything wrong. She didn't do anything wrong. And then the show really became about her misplaced anger Mm. that she can't lay at the beatific dead Right. And I think that that's something that we wanted to show, too. Like, especially with and just like that opening, showing how happy their marriage is and how beautiful. And they're still in love. You can see it. You can feel it. They're dancing. They're making salmon together. But a death makes you look back on your whole relationship. And we couldn't skip over the fact that there were years of hardship between Big and 
and uh, Carrie. He wasn't an angel. He wasn't perfect. And this million-dollar gift is so explosive. And I, I, I feel like it was really important for Carrie to actually realize that she was angry at him for something, if not— <laughs> A you can't really be angry at someone for yeah. having a heart attack and leaving. Yeah. Yeah. People forget. They say, oh, you broke up that happy, happy couple. Big and Carrie, over the six years, were happy for maybe, I'm going to say, 18 minutes on film. <laughs> 18 minutes. The rest of it was not happy. And Natasha was a giant power um. pellet for why Carrie was not happy. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to the million dollars because— That was originally, that was your impulse. That was the original thing. We wrote, I don't know how many versions of it, with a million dollars. Then there came a day when we started worrying. Well, Julie. Jesus. Not just with me. Both of us. Both of us. A million fucking dollars. That's a lot of money. These women are so (laughs) privileged. And we started panicking. And we were like, you know what? It's really not about the amount. In fact, she has a line where she says he could have left her $10 and $1. I'd be just as, yeah, $10, yeah. as, just yeah. as angry. And so we, we pulled back on the number and we had this like dot, dot, dot. Miranda looks at it and says, oh, and it's just this, this vague mystery amount. And guess what? We heard it at the table. It died. It lost all the specificity of that. And we decided, look, look at where she lives. They're obviously incredibly wealthy. We're going to go back to this million dollars because in this case, I think you needed that specificity to earn the whole Mm -hmm. story. I mean, the reality is they are privileged. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean they're unconscious and that doesn't mean they're brutal Mm -hmm. or that they're dismissive, but they are privileged. So that when Charlotte says, which I think is Charlotte has two (laughs) of the lamest, (laughs) greatest friend swings in this episode. The first one is when she says, everybody, come on, it's only $350,000 after after taxes. taxes. (laughs) $450,000 after taxes, which I think is such a funny swing. It's already too much money. Right, right. And then we have Miranda say, that is a shit ton Ton of of money. money. (laughs) And the other great Charlotte swing is is when they finally do see the vision that is Natasha walking in slow motion. And Charlotte says, she's wearing flats. (laughs) And that's the only put down. And even Miranda says, that's the lamest put down I ever heard. So I love that part of Charlotte. She's trying to ground it. As lame as they are, she's trying to ground it. And she's the one in the car that says, I'll end the spiraling right now. You two were happy, the Mm -hmm, end. mm -hmm. But the other thing I want to say about the flats... That joke is only in the show because Bridget Moynihan had a massive Achilles tendon rip mm-hmm. and was in recovery. And when I called her and asked her to do uh, Natasha, she said, one thing, I can't be in heels. And that is, you know, on on the old dun, show dun, dun. is is <laughs> like, what? How are we going to get stature and intimidation when she's supposed to be uh, this giant character. And then I was like, oh, well, Bridget and Natasha is more important than heels. So we came up with that joke. The other real task of the third episode was continually 
introducing and involving the new characters mm -hmm. and to make the audience know that they're not going away, that they're substantial. That's why we start this episode. We also talked about how could we ever, how, what's the first moment after Carrie's on the couch? What do you come in with? And we decide to put them back in the podcast. And so that was also to tee up Che and show people this is a real job. It's not like a conceit of the first two episodes. It's not like most television where it disappears because you're done with it. We doubled down, put her in the podcast, and introduced Che because we wanted to set up the Che Miranda storyline. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I do think, like, even in the first two, there was this feeling from people of, like, I came to see my girls, and who are these people? And it's like, you couldn't, we couldn't win, right? Like, we don't set them up enough, and it feels like we're just, like, tacking on brown people. Uh, we set them up too much, it feels like we're shortchanging our girls. We don't have them at all. Obviously, we're not doing that. And so I think three was also important to your point of starting the podcast of being like, no, these people exist in this world for real. They exist on a day-to-day -day basis regularly. And, I mean, it reflected in the writer's room where Michael was like, call me out on everything. Like, don't feel like you have to be deferent to the three of us who were worked on the original. And I think in the same way for the characters, we didn't want those characters to be, like, deferent to our original three. Mm. We wanted them to, like, really organically exist in the world. And also we had to prove the thesis that Che was a stand-up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that's important. People have fallen so hard for Sada. Oh, my God. They are into uh, Che now because Che rescued mm, you're right. Gloria, Gloria at right. the funeral mm -hmm. and also showed up for Carrie mm -hmm. as a noble being, which is on purpose, because they're about to see a whole other... Horizon line for Che, which is going to uh, titillate some and infuriate others. Mm -hmm. But we talked a lot about what relationships are, marriages. We've all been with people for a very long time and then separated from them or stayed with them. And Miranda and Steve are the couple in the show in addition to um, Charlotte and Harry. And so because we wanted to show a range of relationships, Charlotte and Harry are deeply, deeply still sexual and connected, as you will see. <laughs> and uh, Steve and Miranda aren't. And because Miranda's always been a character that's challenging herself and society, she has gone back to school where you meet Naya and now she's about to have a run-in with Che. Um, Cher's had a run-in with mm -hmm. Sparks mm -hmm. Flew at the funeral. So now it's one step more. So we started with the uh, we started with the podcast and then went to the will reading. But even in the will reading, walk up, you can see she's already titillated because she's invited to Che's podcast. Because now she's listened to it and she's met Che. And it's a different experience. Miranda is such a she's such a great character to interact with Che because as you see in the podcast, Che does that whole riff on change. And I think Miranda, where she is, she's she's both like so true to herself and has always been so strident and sure of what she believes. 
And yet, in this moment, in this new series, she's reevaluating everything and kind of questioning all of those deeply held, you know, um, dogmas. Dogmas that she's, you know, she stood up on so many soapboxes about. And so I'm excited to see and hear what people feel about how episode three ends. But the first thing we have to talk about before we talk about what happens is what Miranda says about a relationship. Where right. a couple with a kid who watch TV and eat ice cream. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. I think that's <laughs> everybody. I'm just going <laughs> to say it's everybody. Rachel, how what do you feel about married life? Um, You're well, divorced. I'm divorced, um, amicably so, but uh, my ex-husband and I were together 20 years. We have two kids, and it. we talked about it a lot because— when you have kids in the mix, like, it's a tricky choice. And like Michael said, a thing I faced a lot was like, why do this? Everybody is just a couple that eats ice cream. Mm. <laughs> what makes you so special that you get to have a second chapter or something? Um, and I look, I think, to like talk about women in their 50s. And as Samantha put it, your vagina doesn't just die when you turn 50. It continues to exist and need. And, <laughs> and so... <laughs> I don't want to steal our very funny Samantha Irby's quotes, but no, I, I will. I think she would Happy to. Uh, co-sign that quotation. It's And at this point, she she's more in her head than in her vagina. Mm -hmm. At this sure. point, yeah. she's just open to ideas and and uh, accepting where mm -hmm. she is, mm -hmm. sort of accepting where she is. And and there's nothing wrong with watching TV and eating ice cream. I mean, that mm -hmm. is no. so important. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to be able to say that that it's not every couple. Mm -hmm. It's this particular couple. Yes. We're not telling anybody to change their families mm -hmm. or change their relationships to their gender. We're trying to show a bridge of a thought between this side thinks this and this mm -hmm. side thinks this. And what if a character is both sides. Mm -hmm. And that was the the real journey to bring Chase stand-up into the show, was to show humor, because that's all we ever do, really. That's all we can do. We're mm -hmm. not legislators. We're not, we can't go to everybody's house and talk their parents into anything mm -hmm. about how they feel. But if we can show warmth and comedy and these three characters that you love reflecting acceptance... In talking about what you just said about, um, you know, most marriages have some kind of— I would say even relationships. Routine. You don't even have to be married. Mm -hmm. You're right. Long-term relationships right. or Very even week-long relationships. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I remember when we shot the scene in Starbucks where Charlotte finds the Tito's bottles and is, you know, very freaked— and says, so how are things with you? And I remember Cynthia played the line, no sex in years. And Charlotte says, really? Um, and she says, yeah. I don't even think either of us even think about it. Think mm -hmm. about it anymore. And she's saying it out loud, but it's not, it's not it's a— It's not a big reveal. Yes. And it's not a problem yet for her. That's why we felt like in this episode we wanted to start with her in that emotional place— 
and then see her awakened with Che, change mm-hmm. everything you change. said. Right. The word change is what's important. And the, the problem that we are trying to massage is her drinking in this episode. Because mm-hmm. it starts in episode one. It's very funny. I'll have a Chablis before college. And everybody could write that off as like, that's funny. Of course, everyone has a glass of wine. It's just before nerves. school. Mm-hmm. Then it's the wine comes out of the purse at the concert, which is a big joke. And And when at the premiere, God, you you know, at the premiere, the audience loved it because it's Mm -hmm. that. And then in the second episode, she really, we showed her really needing a drink so much so that she shifts from wine to bourbon. Super quick. Super Super quick. Super quick. (laughs) And we stay on her while she waits to let the audience know heads up. She's needing this drink. I will also say, and this is something I should know about you, like, am I, is this my first day at the rodeo? But there was a day in the writer's room, and we we had just come back, I think, from lunch, and we were just having a little casual, not writer's room talk. We call it host chat, we call we it host chat about other things than the show. And somehow it came up, my little dessert ritual with my husband. Oh, my God. And God. I'm so naive. For the next hour. You, yeah. So then Michael was like, what? What exactly happens in this dessert ritual? What are you eating? Like, you made me break it down to each little course of the dessert ritual. And Elisa was like, oh, yeah, sure. I've known even this about— I, No, but even I didn't know the details. <laughs> All I knew it was ice cream and cereal. I didn't know— And frozen berries coconut and small bowls. Shaved coconut shaved and, and then the chia seeds. Butter, chia seeds. So this God is a perfect writing seeds. room example of how <laughs> you take some generic relationship story and make it specific by— gutting your own personal life or actually casually mentioning it and then letting us pick it up like buzzers. I thought you were just really interested and I was sharing my story. This is how, like, how is this my first day? And it was very entertaining for everyone. We were just chatting. I was vaguely embarrassed and mortified (laughs) to share this freakish thing that Ben and I do. (laughs) But just like in anything, secret single behavior from Sex and the City, asking everybody, what do you do when you're by yourself? Yes. Carrie, Carrie yes. used to make peanut butter and jelly crackers and stand up reading fashion magazines. Mm-hmm. Saltines. It's, yes. It's saltines. all weird. Mm-hmm. But that was really specifically weird and delightful. And then it became Miranda and Steve's ritual, and we use it in a different way than it is in your relationship. But the other thing that we took from your personal life is the gender issue. It's true. Um, so this brings us to the episode where Rose says to Charlotte, I don't feel like a girl. That's this episode. Yeah. Um, and this that scene is taken right out of my life. I was putting my kid to sleep one night, and they said, I, I don't feel like a boy. I've never felt like a boy. Um, and it really, it was such a... It hit me really hard. It was not the first time this idea had come up in our lives with our kid. Um, But it was the first time that it was spelled out that clearly and directly. And we were reading in bed the way Charlotte is reading in bed. And that kicked off quite a journey for our family. And And it's it's what we've always done. We did— our personal stories when we were all single mm-hmm. and doing Sex in the City. We, 
all had humiliations or emotions that we felt that we explored in story. And just like Rechna is talking about her divorce and amicable and what that meant, the writing room has always been about personal revealing that we allow. It's like a trust that it will then somehow become part of the other characters' mm-hmm. lives. And it stops it from being general, and it makes it specific. It's true, having been in other writers' rooms, not led by you, (laughs) Julie and I were very surprised um, to learn that every show isn't mining your personal stories. It was shocking. We didn't know how to do it any other way. Is, is everything comes from personal experience. And now that the show is out there and just like that, episodes one and two are in the world right now, it, it feels like armor that every single thing we did over this season came from someone's experience. And it's not even just our lives. When it comes to the Che material, I mean, I worked with Sada because Sada is non-binary, And bisexual. As bisexual and also is half Mexican, half Irish. So when you're going to attempt to bring a character on a mainstream show, which is apparently now what this is, who is that? All right, number one, who is that? But when it came to writing the material, I actually attended a Zoom television creators uh, roundtable with trans and non-binary activists. And I asked them, what is the one problem Mm -hmm. with representation of trans, non-binary characters on television? And no matter what room I was in, they always responded, there's only one of us. And we're always sad. And I thought, that is something that I can build comedy material from. We can build a show around that dynamic Mm -hmm. because it's specific to a truth that they're experiencing. And yet, as a comedy writer, I know how to build jokes. And then we all got together and thought, what are the Che jokes? Where is it personal rather than polemic? The most kind of compelling thing is that Che is talking about love and family. And And we cut to Charlotte. Yeah, yeah. I mean... The way Che's stand-up lands on both Miranda and Charlotte is amazing because, you know, Charlotte falls off the bed when Rose says, I don't feel like a girl. It hits her hard, and, you know, she goes to the stand-up show not knowing what she's going to hear, and just hearing which was Sada's actual, the story of coming out was what you put directly into the stand-up, which I loved. I slept four hours for this. Yes. Yes, and they were sort of like, move, you're blocking the game. And you can see on Charlotte's face what her journey, you know, has to be, which is my child can be happy and not alone and not whatever the fears that made her wobble off the bed is kind of cradled a little bit by Che's story. And it's, uh, you know, it's inspiring, I think, not to see that. Not that it's necessarily going to be that that easy. Story. easy. That is or, not the end or of Or even story. that it's going to mm-hmm. conclude in that direct that of a line. Could, right. That it isn't... Right. Whatever it is... Scary or doesn't have to be It anything. can be part of being a family, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And then it goes right into her Charlotte calling Rose 
just say, I just love you. Mm-hmm. And then the Miranda storyline is what excites Miranda or what burns into Miranda's consciousness about Che's act is just change. And the decision to not go home. That scene, when Julie and Elisa handed me that scene, that she seen between her and Che, that I go home like a little robot to my life and uh, changes that and changes objects in motion, stay in motion, objects at rest, stay at rest, whatever the quote is. I thought they were so inside Miranda. I was just beaming because what she brings into that bar is pure Miranda. Mm. It's Mm -hmm. smart and it's racing and it's gushy, which, by the way, by the way, is another reason we brought Che in because we'd never seen Miranda out of her control. Mm-hmm. She, she never, was never gushed. swept away. I mean, Miranda doesn't gush. Charlotte gushes. Look at Charlotte gushing about LTW in episode one. Miranda's like, Remember I don't to know breathe. what that means. Yeah. Right. <laughs> breathe. And then all of a sudden, something is activated in mm-hmm. Miranda. And Miranda. When she actually shotguns, I remember there were a few different versions, and one was like, it was sexy, it was shocking, it was evocative, and then there was another that was funny. That was the last one. Yes, I saw what Cynthia was playing, and I was like, that's sexy, but that's we could do better. (laughs) Right, and I remember you gave her a very specific... Note. No, I just said, get your mouth ready. Don't be so good at this. Right. And then she gets her mouth ready. And in that same take, she followed that through because Cynthia's phenomenal with the comedy exhale. She so blows we get it out the, the side of her mouth. Yes. Of her mouth. Can't see so us. you get the incredible filmmaking sexy by slowing the frame down and doing the spiral and opping the music up. But it's only allowed to be in the show because Cynthia does the comedy blowout at the end. Otherwise, it's not our show. Yeah. Well, you're showing her it as a beginner, you know, and that's exciting to see Miss right. Know-It-All. She's never been a beginner. Back to beginner status. I mean, that was thrilling. We never, ever did anything where the cam- you became so aware of a camera shift, Mm -hmm. and uh, this moment felt gigantic, and I wanted to imprint it Mm -hmm. in the heads, and yet it's funny, and then you cut right out of it, and here we have the daring scene between Charlotte and... Carrie. Carrie in the car. Um, And this was also an important moment because Charlotte finally crosses the line and says something to Carrie that she's worried about Miranda's drinking. And we decided that she would have been protecting Carrie from that for as long as she could because Carrie is mourning, but that she didn't want to touch the rose thing. So she goes to a safer a safer thing for her, I think, in that moment is I'm worried about Miranda. And we had so many conversations because so many of us over the pandemic just started drinking like crazy people right. night after Every night. night. And what is a problem? And when we wanted to put those words into Carrie's mouth to say, like, yeah, we're all drinking too much. And by the way, I, I did see some viewers on social media were defensive about <gasps> Miranda's drinking. Well, uh, how could they say she has a drinking problem? It's just like all of us are oh, doing funny. it, and which was actually the point of the, the story. Point. And then yeah. so after Carrie gets out of the car, 
because we set up that our apartment is haunted and because we want to make bold moves as writers, we knew we were going to get rid of the apartment because it's haunted. So the biggest Easter egg of all for us in this entire episode is Carrie walks to her old apartment. And hopefully the audience gets that same thrill that, oh, it's a new show. But she went to her old home. She's walking home, yeah. And so that's really what And Just Like That is. It's taking elements from the old that we love and embrace and bringing in elements from the new that is moving us all along, whether it be a death, uh, new characters, new changes in the original characters, or something as profound as going to a home that you left. And just like that, that's the end of this podcast on episode three, When in Rome. I'd like to thank Julie Rottenberg and Elisa Zaritsky and Regina Fruchtbaum. And we're back <laughs> next week with another podcast. See you then. Bye. Bye. This is the official companion podcast for the HBO Max show and Just Like That. And it's a production of HBO Max and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers are Barry Finkel, Gabrielle Lewis, Max Zielinski, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our senior producer on the show is Emmanuel Hapsis. Jonathan Shiflett is our producer, and Janelle Anderson is our associate producer. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Josh Gwynn is our editor, and our engineers are Davey Sumner and Elliot Adler. Production music is courtesy of HBO Max. You can listen to the next episode of And Just Like That, the Writer's Room podcast, after watching episode four of And Just Like That on HBO Max. And don't forget to subscribe for new conversations every week, wherever you get your podcasts.